electronic satellites suddenly go out of control. There are voltage surges across the globe. In some places, there's a complete blackout. Scientists have little data on this incredible solar behavior, so we're still unable to accurately predict how or when exactly the next geomagnetic storm will happen. One such event took place back in July 2012, but thankfully it missed us. Not by far, though, by a mere nine days. Just to give you a glimpse of what nearly happened, I need to explain some astronomical basics. A solar storm is a series of effects we feel here on Earth after certain events occur on the Sun. Our star is nothing more than a huge ball of molten gases that are constantly moving around. So these events happen more often than you'd think. For a solar storm to begin, our Sun needs to emit bursts of energy. They're in the form of solar flares and coronal mass ejections. These two phenomena send electrical charges and waves of magnetic fields toward the Earth at an astonishing speed of about 3 million miles per hour. When these solar storms reach our planet, we can see northern lights display in locations close to the Arctic Circle. But they can also mess up satellites or other types of electronic communications. Some of these solar storms can be dangerous, and back in 2012, we came close to experiencing a very powerful one that could have had a serious outcome. The most powerful in as much as 150-plus years, based on research done by astronomers. But how did we manage to escape it? Did we have something to do with it, or was it just a pure coincidence? What we do know is that one of those coronal mass ejections did hit the Earth's orbit in late July 2012. Our planet had already left that specific location as it was on its scheduled trajectory around the Sun. So you might be asking yourself at this point, what if it didn't miss us? Turns out, these intense solar storms are dangerous to all sorts of technological objects. Given we are now literally surrounded by electric objects, from our phones to our cars, try to imagine what would happen if they all stopped working all of a sudden. And here's how they work. Solar storms start with an explosion, or a solar flare. Then X-rays and UV radiation travel to our Earth at the speed of light. Some of the side effects? Well, they can include radio blackouts and GPS navigation errors. The effects can continue as minutes, or at times hours later, energetic particles reach our atmosphere. They move only a bit slower than the speed of light, but they can electrically shock the Earth's satellites and damage their components. Lastly, about a day later, clouds of magnetized plasma reach us as well. They can cause huge power blackouts, more or less paralyzing everything with an electrical plug. We might not even be able to flush our toilets, since most water supplies in cities use electric pumps these days. The effects of these geomagnetic storms would be different around the world, though. Solar storms are curious by themselves, but why do they affect some locations on Earth more than others? Based on recent research, geology has a lot to do with it. But I need to take you back a bit to paint you the bigger picture. Buckle up, because we're taking a trip in the time machine to a time when the moon didn't even exist yet. 4.6 billion years ago, our solar system looked a lot different than it does now, and that's putting it lightly. 
hundreds of new planets began to form around the new Sun. Planets like our own Earth, Venus, or Mars were still hurtling around the cosmos. Back in the 1970s, an astronomer named Donald R. Davis developed a theory that said the Moon was born when another planet hit a newly formed Earth about 4.5 billion years ago. He also indicated that it might have been the size of Mars and later named this planet Theia. It's difficult to imagine what that impact might have looked like, even with the equipment we have these days. The astronomers suggested the giant impact hypothesis trying to piece together this mystery. After running into our planet, the outer rocky layers of both Earth and Theia were projected into a circle of cosmic matter. Out of this debris, what we now know as the Moon was born. The Earth's core has apparently consumed Theia's iron core, that is, if it had any. Our planet also got into the position it occupies today. This way, it became more susceptible to geomagnetic storms. Back then, there was little to no information as to what might have happened to Theia, apart from giving us our only natural satellite. It took several years for a series of scientists to come up with an exciting new idea that revolutionized what we knew about our planet. What was left out of Theia is hiding under two continent-sized layers of rock deep within our planet. This theory is also one of the only explanations for why the Moon is so dry and doesn't have much of an iron core. But why is geology so important when it comes to geomagnetic storms? Well, that's because recent data revealed that the type of rocks below your feet can affect how well your city adapts after powerful geomagnetic storms. Some types of rock, like sedimentary rocks, for example, generally have more space filled with water, which makes them electrically conductive. Other types of rocks are denser and have more resistance when it comes to electricity. Whenever such a storm happens, people living in the New England highlands may have a higher risk of experiencing major disruptions. At the same time, those in the mid-Atlantic coastal plain have less to worry about, simply due to what's hidden beneath their cities. How did we know how scary these storms are? Well, this wasn't the first time it happened. Solar storms have dazzled the astronomer community for many years now. The most iconic event of this magnitude was the Carrington event, which happened way back in September 1859. It gave us a sneak peek of what the power of the sun is, to say the least. They named it after an English astronomer, Richard Carrington, who witnessed the solar flares himself. The power of that solar storm was something humans had never experienced before. The strong geomagnetic storm caused northern lights as far down south as the territory of Hawaii. On the morning of September 1, 1859, Richard Carrington made his way into his private observatory, located outside of London. He opened the observatory dome to have a complete view of the sky and directed his telescope to the location of the sun he saw a bunch of huge dark spots that gleamed on the surface of our star. Shortly enough, Carrington noticed two enigmatic areas, intensely bright and full of white light bursting out from the sunspots. They disappeared five minutes later, but the effects carried on all across the Earth's surface. At first, later in the night, 
telegraph communications all around the world started to malfunction. Flashes of light started to burst from telegraph machines, disturbing the operators and even setting papers on fire. Brightly colored auroras started to appear in the nighttime skies all over the world, making confused birds chirp at night. Some people even began their daily activities, since they mistakenly thought the day had already begun. These days, our planet is laced with a mega-information web, so the impact of such a solar storm would be even messier. Back in the 1800s, the telegraph system was just starting out, but this Victorian internet was an important way of sending news and private messages. Even in the United States, telegraph operators had noticed local interruptions because of thunderstorms and northern lights before. But the Carrington event and its effects were something they had never seen before. A lot of telegraph lines in North America became useless. One telegraph manager based in Pittsburgh even recalled that the currents flowing through the wires were so strong, their platinum contacts were in danger of melting. Another example was that of a telegraph operator located in Washington, D.C., named Frederick W. Royce, who was hurt as his forehead touched a ground wire. Samples taken from the Earth's icy locations tell us that the Carrington effect was twice as big as any other solar storm experienced in the last 500 years. It's very difficult to imagine what the impact of a storm of that magnitude might be today. But based on a 2008 report drafted by the National Academy of Sciences, it might cost us between 1 trillion and 2 trillion in damages. There are things we can do individually to help reduce the amount of damage, though, like buying a generator or installing a backup energy supply. This can be either a solar panel or a wind turbine. More so, we can equip our houses with surge protectors that connect to our electrical panels and can save us from lightning and other power surges. The simplest solution of them all? Just unplug all the devices you're not using at any particular moment. If they aren't connected to a power source, they can't be affected by any surges. What is the one modern-day convenience we use six to eight times a day that we all take for granted? The answer? The lowly toilet. Some people on social media claim we've been using our toilets all wrong. Rather than sitting in it like a chair, we should be facing backwards instead. That's right, another way to use the toilet is to sit facing the water reservoir. It makes the structure and shape much more logical, giving the toilet different uses. Now you can use the toilet tank as a makeshift desk. It's the perfect place to put your phone, some books, a glass of milk, and maybe even a sandwich. Great for serious multitaskers. But is it really a good idea? Probably not. One problem. Doctors warn that sitting too long on the toilet can cause problems. In fact, spending more than 10 minutes using the can is too much. So don't settle in to watch your favorite TV show. What about eating and drinking? In a survey from the UK, 18% said they eat on the toilet. If you do it, you're not alone. But toilet bowls are covered in 3.2 million bacteria per square inch. Blech! Do you want that near your chips and soda? The toilet is not the dirtiest surface you encounter daily, though. What are they? Your toothbrush is one. Every morning, that thing you put in your mouth has 200,000 bacteria per square inch. 
And then there's your computer keyboard. Without proper cleaning, it has almost 200 times the number of bacteria than the toilet. Even your smartphones is a problem. A 2018 study discovered phones are seven times worse than toilet seats. Seriously, when was the last time you cleaned that thing? Most of us grew up with quaint names for the toilet. And some of these expressions reveal a lot about its history. For example, a lot of people use the term potty. Do you know why? This term originated in the Middle Ages. Back then, the toilet was an actual pot. The only way to dispose of the contents was to dump the pot out after use. The easiest way to do this for those living above the first floor was to throw it out the window. In France, they warned passers-by with the phrase Prenez garde à l'eau, which translates to be aware of the water. When you heard those words, you knew to cover your head and run. One story says the 12th century French king Philippe Auguste decreed this warning must be given before each dumping after being covered in the contents of one. You could yell back, hold your hand, hoping you were heard in time. It wasn't always practical. Did you know this also gave birth to the popular British saying, cheerio? Well-off members of society were sometimes carried in special chairs. First used in France, sedan chairs offered a single seat inside a tiny compartment. They even included a removable roof for nice days. Holding on to long poles attached to either side, workers, appropriately called chairmen, transported the sedan around town. To keep their employers from being hit in the head by unmentionable things, servants shouted, chair below. This eventually became cheerio. In an attempt to limit the number of people hit by refuse, the city of Edinburgh, Scotland, passed the 1749 Nastiness Act. The law stated that the waste could only be tossed between 10 p.m. and 7 a.m. That meant late night walkers had more than just bats and wolves to watch out for. For those much better off financially, the garden robe took the place of the chamber pot. The term actually means to guard the robes. People stored their clothing here. It was similar to a closet, but with one very special feature, a toilet. People believed the unpleasant odor in the room helped keep moths and bugs off their clothing. This toilet's design was simple. It was a seat made of wood or stone positioned above a shaft that led down into a pit. Some fancier ones were even installed above the moat. Or do you call it a throne instead? Here's why. This euphemism can be traced back to King Louis XIV. He often conducted royal business while seated at the toilet, making it the alternative to his usual throne. You can even find a replica of it in New Delhi, India, at the Sulab International Museum of Toilets. Sir John Harrington, godson to Queen Elizabeth I, invented England's first flushable toilet in 1592. Not bad for someone who wasn't an inventor. He was better known as a poet, and by some accounts, a terrible one. He also told inappropriate stories at court and gained a reputation as Elizabeth's saucy godson. To protect her own name, the queen banished him to the town of Kelston, about 100 miles from London. During his time in exile, he designed his toilet, which he called Ajax. That name seems a bit random, but it makes sense. The term Jakes was slang for a toilet at the time, so Ajax was a play on the word a Jake. It was an impressive setup, with a raised cistern attached to a small pipe. 
When flushed, it would shoot water down into the bowl to remove any waste. Queen Elizabeth eventually allowed Harrington to return to London. He proudly showed off his new invention, and she was so impressed by it that she ordered one for herself. But having a queen as a customer was not enough. The idea for the flushable toilet would not catch on for another few centuries. In 1775, Alexander Cummings improved Harrington's design to create a smell-free flushable toilet. He added the S-shaped pipe we still use to this day. The shape traps the worst odors in the toilet and away from our sensitive noses. Hmm, why isn't there a national holiday in this man's name? But wait, did you hear that the inventor of the toilet was actually a man named Thomas Crapper? Thomas was a real man. He worked as a sanitation engineer or plumber in the early 1900s and created the first showroom for bathroom fittings. He even stamped his name, T. Crapper, on the items he sold. Wallace Rayburn embellished Thomas's story in his 1969 book, Flushed with Pride, The Story of Thomas Crapper. The biography, which claimed Thomas left home at 11 years old to become a plumber in London, where he eventually invented the modern toilet, was wholly made up. Rayburn also wrote about the fictional inventor of the brasserie in Bust Up, the uplifting tale of Otto Titzling. But as much as things have improved, toilets can still be the source of some rather unpleasant experiences. I hope you're not squeamish. We've all heard stories about snakes coming out of people's toilets. Aren't these just silly urban legends? Although rare, snakes can and do come out of people's toilets. Most of the pipes in the sewer system are drier than people think, making them easy for snakes to move through. The only real water they encounter is in the toilet bowl, which isn't much of a barrier for the animal. One family discovered a female jungle carpet python in their bathroom in Australia. She was almost 6.6 feet long. Hmm, I might not use the toilet ever again. You can retrofit your plumbing with a multi-flap if this really bothers you. It lets water and waste out while stopping anything slithery from getting in. You're welcome. What's the most you would spend on toilet paper? One Australian company created a roll made with 22 karat gold. Sold in 2013, it cost $1,376,900. I hope it was three-ply. And it probably didn't last long, since we use around 57 sheets of toilet paper each day. That adds up. Americans alone account for 433 million miles of TP used each year. Fully rolled out, that would reach all the way to the sun and back again. Toilet paper wasn't commercially available until 1857, when it was introduced in New York. It was sold in packages of 500 sheets for 50 cents. Before then, humans used everything from leaves to pottery pieces, from corn cobs to pages from catalogs. In 1992, archaeologists found so-called hygiene sticks. The 2,000-year-old wooden tools looked like spatulas. To use one, you simply wrap the end with a cloth. Have to use a public restroom? Here's a tip. The first toilet stall is used least often. So if you're looking for the cleanest spot, this is the cubicle for you. And things in Europe are a little different than in North America. In Canada and the US, public washrooms are free. It's different for Europeans. In places like London or Paris, you have to pay first. Sometimes as much as $1.50.
And now that you genuinely appreciate your toilet, why not send it a card on National Toilet Day, celebrated annually on November 19th? 